And is Jesus somehow in tension with that? And that's, that's not exactly what's going on here. You see, what the Pharisees had done is they grabbed the first half of their teaching, you shall love your neighbor, from Leviticus 19. But then they twisted the context. And the context of that verse is talking about God's people's life together, their life in Israel. And the Pharisees were like, well, it doesn't say anything about people outside of Israel, so I guess that means we can hate them. And they twisted the context, and they used it just to sort of rubber stamp the way they wanted to live their lives. And Jesus is calling them out on that. He's saying, no, that's not the spirit. It was always from the beginning. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. It was for the life of the church and the life of the world. And so he's calling the Pharisees out, and he's turning our eyes back to what God's word has always been teaching us. And so he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as we come to that teaching Again, it's one sentence, and compared to time, times, and half a time, and some of the other things in Daniel, it's easy to get our minds around, but to get our hearts and our lives around it is a great challenge. And we ought to then pause and, and unpack the meaning here, because it's, it's incredible just the things Jesus packs into this one sentence. And the first thing we see is that notice that Jesus goes from singular enemy in the Pharisees' teaching to plural enemies. And you might be like, well, you're just a nerd, like pointing out all this grammar stuff to us. But there's actually significance to that because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you don't get to say, well, Jesus' teaching only applies to this kind of enemy. And these kind of people, I don't have to worry about loving them. That's not at all what he means. He's sort of like being the smart parent who doesn't just say to their kids, like, hey, go clean your room. Because if you're a kid or you've ever been a kid who has a room to clean, you know that all you do is you bulldoze all your stuff under the bed. And if it doesn't fit there, you shove it in the closet, and you arrange everything, and it passes like the 50-second inspection, and you're good. The smart parents are like, ah, and I've been there. And they say, clean your room, and that includes under the bed and in the closet. They don't leave any room for wiggling out of what's being communicated. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, like you don't get to shove certain people aside and say, well, they're out because they're this or that. They say this about politics or they really don't like me and they actually hate me. He's saying, no, I'm calling you to love all your enemies, no matter if they're a tech fan or UGA fan or Tennessee, no matter if they're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Blue Enigma, which is something in Delaware. Only we would come up with that. Like He's saying, no, you don't get to put people out because they're in this or that tribe. I'm calling you to see past that and see in them the image of God, and to love them still. And that's just in a grammatical change. And then notice, too, that there's a second piece to the command. We often uh, just refer to this as love your enemies, but there are two parts. It's actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the fact that he puts those two things together is significant because what he's doing is he's telling us this isn't just about putting on some sort of facade and like a Walmart smiley face sticker on your face all the time or Chick-fil-A or Southern hospitality manners. He's saying, this is also about your heart. It's in public and in private, before man and before God. He's talking about a comprehensive way of life and how we view those who disagree with us, who hate us, who attack us, who have hurt us. And that's when things get tough. Uh, because if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with you, this is where I have a hard time. Because I like to kind of pigeonhole myself into one thing or the other. And be like, well, I pray for people. And like, not just, oh, I'll pray for you and then never do it, but actually... I pray for them, and, and I think, well, that's good. I don't have to then get my hands dirty in real life. And I was deeply convicted of this in college. Uh, I was an RA, and that meant, you know, I stayed up late and enforced the rules and also tried to take care of people as uh, they didn't follow the rules. And there's one group of guys, you know, who just did not like me or the other RAs, and they called me Napoleon because I'm short and, uh, and because I enforced the rules. And my name has four letters, and other words have four letters, and sometimes they go together, I guess. And it just wasn't, like, I got really bitter. And there was one time, I, me and the other RAs were just venting. 
about these guys. And I got back to my room and I was by myself and I was gearing up for like a 4 a.m. Friday night as you're waiting for them to come back and make sure nobody needs to go to the hospital, that kind of thing. And the Lord just broke me. Just, I was in my room and it just slammed with the thought like I have never prayed for these guys. And I am deeply hateful towards them. And if I were given the chance, I don't know if I would share the gospel. And that was a, a dark moment where the Lord just confronted me with my sin. And he showed me, like, you're trying to act like you love them because you would care for them at their bedside if they came back sick, but you don't want them redeemed. And so Jesus is calling us out on that. He's showing us that what he's talking about here is not just a facade. It's not just a smile. It has to be more than empty words. And what that does is that drives us to him, that we need his grace to live this out because it is a truly radical teaching in fact, it's, it's so radical that notice who he doesn't seem to mention in his teaching. Because the Pharisees, they talk about, here's how you treat your neighbors, and here's how you treat your enemies. And Jesus only seems to mention our enemies, which should be a little odd at first, because if you know anything about Jesus' teaching for his people, is that he talks a lot about loving our neighbors. And so it's almost kind of odd that he doesn't mention that here. But then remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that whole parable in Luke was an answer to one question, which was, who is my neighbor? And that question was sort of like, well, who counts as my enemy? It's, can I put people in a box and these are the only ones I have to love and these other ones I don't have to worry about? And the whole lesson of that parable is that anyone you meet is your neighbor, even your enemies. And that's actually what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing is he's, in telling us to love our enemies, he's breaking down for us the category of enemy. He's telling us we don't get to carve the world up into those we'll love, those we'll like, and those we'll hate. He's saying, no, you are called to be as I have been to you and to love even your enemies. That's a radical way of life and it feels unnatural. And as you think about it, you might start to cringe. You're like, well, what am I supposed to pray for for these people? Pray for those who persecute me? Do I just pray that the persecution stops? Well, you pray more than that. You pray that they would ultimately become your brother or your sister in Christ. And if that feels awkward, then that's good. Because if it doesn't feel awkward, if it doesn't start getting in your cage and getting in your face and grinding your gears a bit, then we're probably not applying it specifically enough. Because this is not what we want to do. And it's weighty and it's hard. But what Jesus is calling us to do is to remember that there is more to people just as there is more to us than our sins, no matter how awful they are. That we are all orphaned sinners who are a distorted image of God in need of our Father, in need of a Savior. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, is there anyone whom we think is irredeemable or whom we think God just shouldn't redeem because of what they've done? And then the follow-up is, have we ever prayed for these people, deeply longed for their redemption, not just for justice to be had, which is good in and of itself, but also that they would be brought out of their sins, that the blood of Christ would wash over them, that they would know that Christ wept over their sins and that he has made a way that, all, that anyone who comes and who is repentant can become a child of God. Do we long for that? You know, I actually, I started writing this sermon before the election, and to be honest, you know, just another example of uh, me and, and me, not just Cameron, but also me being wrong is, I said, hey man, like I wanna talk about the election as I apply this, because I think it will be, uh, you know, really practical and yet challenging. And I was like, but do you think I should wait till it's over? And he's like, nah, I'm pretty sure Clinton's gonna win. And I was like, yeah, I think so too, that's right. And then here we all were both wrong, she lost. And yet that doesn't mean, though, that she doesn't, that this doesn't apply to her. It applies to Trump, too, of course. But just imagine for a second, like, if one of them, like, say, if Hillary Clinton showed up at our church and she met with this session and she confessed her sin and she professed the lordship of Christ 
She said, and I want to become a member of your church. I want to worship with you all week in and week out because I think the gospel is being proclaimed here. I want to partake in the means of grace. How would we respond? So I think a lot of us, uh, especially in the South, it seems to be like Luke Skywalker finding out the identity of his dad. We'd be like, no, that's impossible. That's not true. And we'd become deeply cynical and we'd freak out and we would, we would find any way we could to say, this, isn't, this is a fraud. Like she's here to take our religious freedom. Like this is just an infiltration tactic. And what would happen is we'd stand on the outside almost fell there. We'd stand on the outside like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We would not celebrate the redemption of one that we had written off. That's how radical this is because we want to say that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He can redeem the vilest of sinners. He can redeem his enemies and make them sons and daughters. And we're going to pass over verse 45. We're going to look at that in connection with 48 in a few minutes here. But for now, look then at verses 46 to 47. Because Jesus, he understands that this command is hard and that it seems impossible, that it feels so unnatural to us. But what he says to us then is, but that's the point. Because this isn't natural. This isn't what you find in the world. And that's why in verses 46 and 47, he takes the Pharisees on and he shows them. He says, look, what you guys are doing, it's just the same thing everyone else is doing. And he compares them to tax collectors and to Gentiles. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, again, they were the ones who were like, we are the Jewish, uh, the most Jewish of the Jews. We, we have arrived. And the tax collectors were a bunch of sellouts. They were Jews who worked with the Roman authorities who most Jews hated. And they used the Roman power to then cheat their brothers and sisters out of money. And so they were sellouts. To be compared to them was just awful and insulting. And then the Gentiles were those that the Jews consistently wrote off and said, they're outside of redemption. They're outside of the covenant. And Jesus' point to the Pharisees then is, look, like what you're doing, you may not like these people, but you're acting the same exact way. And so in verse 46, he points out, he says, look, if you love only those who love you, there is no real reward to that. Now, that's not to say that there aren't benefits, because there's a lot of benefits just to interacting with people who think like you do, who like the things you do, who are nice to you. You'll have a comfortable life. You'll probably have a nice reputation. You're not going to have conflict. And if you're like me, that's a perk, because I hate conflict. I, I love to run the other way. And if we do what Jesus is doing, it's like, hey, run right into the conflict. And don't throw any punches. You know, just get wailed on sometimes, it might feel. It seems crazy. But his point is that if we only love those who love us, there's no eternal reward to that. There's no treasure in heaven that comes in that. That's the baseline. It's not that loving those who love us is bad at all, but that's where we get started and we go and we expand beyond that in Christ. And then in verse 47, he points out that the Pharisees, they aren't doing anything special. They're, if you greet only your brothers, that is, if you only fill your social circles and your Facebook page um, with people that you like and who, who think like you do, and those are the only people you ever engage with, and you're just acting like the world does. And they call it tribalism nowadays. It's something that a lot of social philosophers talk about, where we just sort of get our group, we all wear our own flair that looks the same, and then we just kind of throw stones at each other, but we never cross the boundaries. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you guys are just doing your own brand of the same thing everyone else is doing. And would you believe it or not that that is probably the weightiest charge that's leveled against the church today? That what the world so often sees in us is the love your neighbor and hate your enemy ethic just with a little Jesus bumper sticker bap, or slapped on top. And so often, if we examine our hearts, I think we, we confess, like, yeah, that is often what, what they see. That's often how we act. 
And that's really important for us to keep in mind because a lot of people are bracing themselves for what's coming in the election. And rightly or wrongly, with a, a Republican government coming into power, people assume that that means that the religious right is going to rise up and that they could smash down the opponents. And so notice what happens then with things that we care about often in the church, things like the meaning of marriage. If they become just a political issue, notice what happens. People get smashed in the crossfire. And the gospel is forgotten. It's no longer proclaimed. And so as God's people, we have to be careful that we are sensitive and feeling out the pause of what's going on right now. And that as we talk about these issues, as we talk about the things going on in the world around us, that we are careful not to just go after specks in people's eyes, that we check our hearts and make sure there aren't planks coming out of our own eyes, that we're just beating people's heads as we're looking this way and that and planks are flying. And that instead of sharing the gospel, we're sharing truth without love, which is unbiblical. We're to proclaim the truth, yes, but to do it in love. I think one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard about this is uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And I don't know, if you haven't heard that story, you ought to look her up because it's amazing. She was a, a deeply passionate and, and uh, convicted member of the LGBT community. And she wrote out against what she perceived to be Christian bigotry against that community. And her article garnered a massive response. And there were all these people who wrote letters that condemned her. And there were all these people who wrote letters that praised her. And there was one guy who wrote a letter that went straight down the middle. And she had no idea what to do with it. Because it was clear to her that he did not agree with what she believed. But he treated her like a person. Like someone created in God's image. And she was like, whoa. I don't like what this guy is saying, but he seems to care about me. And this was a a pastor and his wife, and they actually invited her into their home. Repeatedly, over time, that grew a friendship. And the Lord used that. He used that love of someone that so often we'd want to call an enemy. He used that to bring Rosaria Butterfield out of her sin and into Christ, which is amazing. We would like to say that's impossible. Politically, it is impossible. In fact, did you know that nowadays they actually say that people marry, it's, it, you're less likely to marry someone who disagrees with you politically than someone who disagrees with you religiously, which is profound. That's changed. You know, 50 years ago, it wasn't that way. And so in politics, the one thing that seems impossible is change, and yet here it happened because of a deep love for those in a different community. And so we have to ask ourselves then, does our love, does it look like just a copy of the world's definition of love? with a little Jesus bumper sticker slapped on top, or is it a reflection of God's love? Are we willing to do the hard work of of being salt and light in the world, of engaging with those who disagree with us, and taking time not just to fire another tweet off after them, but going out to coffee and saying, hey, you've got some good questions. Let's talk about that. And even if we disagree, I know that this is the gospel. This is the love that is offered to you. And my friendship does not hinge upon you saying things I like. And again, that may be hard, but Jesus is calling us to something that is so much more wonderful than what we find in the world and, that, and what burns us. Because in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, we're a reformed church, and so something like this freaks us out because outside of Christ, we emphasize like you are totally depraved, you have no hope, you're an object of wrath. And so anytime we're told to be perfect, we're like, whoa, bro, like I'm gonna quote Hannah Montana and be like, nobody's perfect. Like, let's just sing that a couple of times and just get that straight. But we have to remember that in the Reformed Church, we also emphasize our union with Christ. And we emphasize God's grace. And we emphasize sanctification. And that Jesus isn't talking to us outside of him and dead in our sins. He's talking to us as God's redeemed and beloved children. 
the idea of being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect isn't talking about impeccability or being without sin. Obviously, we're going to wrestle with sin throughout our whole Christian lives. What Jesus is talking about is he's talking about being like our Father. And we're told all throughout Scripture, imitate your Father. Be holy as he is holy. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is what grace is for. We receive mercy that we would be forgiven of our sins, and we receive grace that we would go out and live a redeemed life. And the way to think about it is if you've ever enjoyed a sport or some sort of skill or craft or you like playing music, imagine if someone you look up to is like a legend in whatever that thing is, called you up and said, for the next year, I want you to study and, and practice with me so that you could be like me. And that's going to be challenging. Like, I love baseball. I'm terrible at it, but as a kid, I loved it, and Calvin Jr. was my sports idol. And if he'd called me up as a kid and said, like, yo, I'm going to teach you how to be a shortstop, I'm like, well, I'm going to need a couple inches because I got this short, but the whole stop part's not, not going. Um, but it would have been awesome. It would have been challenging. It would have been hard, yes, like this teaching is. It's challenging. But it would have been a gift. It's an invitation. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, look at the life that you can have, that you do have in me because of what I've done. I'm calling you to something so much more beautiful than the division and the hate and the hostility that everyone is groaning under in the world. And so this is not meant to be a burden to us. It is not meant to be a crushing uh, measurement that we just always fall short of. It's an invitation to be like our Father who has loved us. That's why then, if you look back at verse 45, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's not a so that, like, if you don't do this, then you're out. That's a so that, so that you would experience the fullness of life, the abundant life that you have in Christ as a redeemed and beloved child. And he gives us an example. And the example is, is interesting. He says, you know, God makes his son rise on the good and the evil, and he sends rain to the just and the unjust. We might be like, well, that seems pretty trite. I mean, the sun's going to come up, and the rain will maybe come. It hasn't come for us in a while. Um, but imagine, this would be like us paying the utilities and grocery bills for our bitter enemies month in and month out without thanks. Like what, what Jesus is saying is that God sustains the life of those who devote their entire existence to shaking their fists and raising their fingers against the heavens and rebelling against him and, and mocking him and hating his word and despising him. Yet he gives them life day in and day out. Common grace is common, yes, but it's still a beautiful gift. And then Jesus says, too, he says, look, uh, well, he doesn't say it here, but we know it's coming. The most beautiful expression of God's love for his enemies is the cross, is the giving of his son for us. And it, I, I ask myself this all the time. I'm, I'm a pretty heady, kind of nerdy philosophy guy, and I'm not always emotional, but it's like, do I have no wonder that God sent his son to die while I was in rebellion and an enemy? Like, does, does that not stir us up? And if, if that were the message we proclaim, I don't understand how uh, the world could think Christianity is just about us being perfect and throwing stones at the other people. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God so loved a bunch of rebels and rivals, people who wanted to usurp his throne with our own pride and pompous um, arrogance, that he would send his son to be stripped naked, to die a humiliating death, to be suffocating under the weight of his own body and the weight of our own sin and our own guilt, that he could reconcile us and make us his children. And we have to remember that because you may be thinking like, man, but you don't understand the kind of abuse and the harm that people have done to me. There's no way I can love those people. And Jesus isn't at all calling for us 
to sugarcoat people's sins, to sugarcoat the harm and the hurt that's happened to us because he came to die for that. He knows that those things are real and that there is real evil. But he is calling for us to hope for redemption, to pray for it, to earnestly long that people would come and that they would become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why we have to ask then, where is God giving us relationships and opportunities to reflect his love in this world? Again, you know, the, the tumultuous times right now, full of tension and division, that's a great time for us to go out and just to be salt and light, to be people who smile and who have a hope, to be sort of like a Chestertonian, like jovial influence, like when people come at us and they attack our views, instead of just like slinging rocks back at them, just to laugh and just to be human and say like, hey, let's talk about this. That's different. That's a reflection of the gospel. It doesn't just mean we have to sit down with people and go through the whole creation, fall, restoration paradigm. Sometimes just taking the hits and saying, I love you still, and I want to keep talking about this, is one of the most profound reflections of God's love that you could ever give somebody. And so this is a great question for us to ask this Sabbath day as we rest from last week's labors, as we prepare for the week ahead, as we thank God for our blessings. You know, let us, one, thank him that he so loved us, his enemies, that he would die for us to make us sons and daughters. And let us ask him then to fill us with his spirit and guide us by his grace that we could go out, that we could be ambassadors of reconciliation. So that even if what we are dreading most this week is not uh, the Trump presidency that's coming or not uh, whatever else may happen politically, but what we're dreading is a visit with our own family, even. Would that we would, we would know that God is faithful in uncertain times. And that those hard conversations and those, those difficult relatives are not just obstacles, but they're opportunities. Would that we would pray that God would open our eyes and, and humble our hearts. Because Thanksgiving dinners, no matter how good or how stressful, they one day will pass. And it will come the wedding feast of the Lamb. When God's people will be united to him and we will be reconciled together. And it's amazing. Just imagine for a second, who might be there? And imagine like if, if Trump and Clinton, say, are, are redeemed and in God's beautiful, poetically ironic sovereignty, they're sitting next to each other. And like there's no hint of resentment. And it's beautiful. They're, they're fellowshipping. They're, they're glorifying God. Imagine then who you might sit next to. Uh, again, you know, that's speculation. We don't know how God's going to have the whole seating arrangement down. But the reason we ought to ask ourselves that is, who do you think you would least likely see there? Breaking bread, celebrating God's faithfulness. Because those are the ones we ought to go after. Those are the ones who so most need to hear the gospel and that we ought to pray for. So what do we learn from Matthew 5, 43 to 48? Well, it teaches us first that Jesus, he breaks down that category of enemy. That we can long for that possibility of redemption, that those whom we would least expect, we can pray and hope that God will indeed use us and just use the Spirit to redeem them. And then two, that loving our enemies is a critical component of our witness in this divided world, that this is at the heart of what makes us different, not who we vote for, not the things we say, the books we read, the coffee cups we carry around, none of that stuff. What makes us different is that we would be willing to love those who hate us. And last. We learn that God grows his family by turning his enemies into his children. And he has done that, first of all, with us. That we were once rebels and rivals and bitter. But that he sent his son to die. That we could become children. And so, as his children, may we now go and, and come boldly before his throne of grace, thanking him for what he has done for us. 
and praying and asking that he would use us as his redeemed and beloved children, that he would use us as an ambassadors of reconciliation in this broken and divided world. So let us pray. Lord, we do come before you, and it is a hard time, Lord. Uh, you know, perhaps we're still just uh, puzzled and, uh, and, and angry or anxious about the election, Lord, or perhaps we are dreading uh, seeing certain relatives, Lord. Um, you know, God, how, how broken life east of Eden can be, Lord, and how brother can turn on brother and, and uh, just family can be divided. But Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into your family and that we've been reconciled to you. And Lord, we pray that you would go out and that your spirit would move in this world through us, your people, that many more would come and be your sons and daughters, Lord, that heaven would break out in a party all the time, celebrating the redemption and the return of many lost image bearers of yours. Lord, would you forgive us for so often just loving those for whom it's easy for us to love. Lord, help us to be salt and light. We, we feel totally incapable of doing this, but we know, Jesus, that you have died for us and you've died for our sins and you've poured out your grace that we need not rely on our strength, but that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. We feel that in this teaching. Help us, Lord, to, to have our eyes open, to see you at work in this world. And we just give you thanks again that you would so love us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.